Morning Glory America. I'm Hugh Hugh in the ReliefFactor.com studio. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week for me, and that usually means Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College, joins me as he usually does most Fridays. Sometimes Dr. Matthew Spaulding of the Kirby Center, the Lighthouse of Reason in Washington, D.C. does, but the Lantern of the North is where we find Dr. Larry Arndt this week. He's up in Hillsdale, Michigan. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. That includes their wonderful online courses. All of our uh, Hillsdale dialogues dating back to 2013 are found at hugh4hillsdale.com. You can binge listen, beginning with Homer up to the present day. Sometimes we do current events. Often we go back in history. Today with Dr. Arn, we're going to go back in history. Dr. Arn, good morning to you. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you doing? Good. You know, I was reading the British newspapers this morning, and um, this was by way of introduction to our topic of China, Hong Kong, and India. The 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 rump of Tory remainers who are aligning themselves with Jeremy Corbyn and the Liberal Democrats to defeat Brexit, uh, the vote of the British people, reminds me of the reading I did on the Reform Act of 1832. The Tories at that time blocked reform that had passed in the House of Lords, and the King William had to create new peers. It's, it, I guess, every 200 years the Commons or the or the representatives of the people don't want to do what the people want to do. That's right. The uh, uh, same thing happened in, what, 1911, 1909 to 1911, when there's a crisis over the House of Lords. But this is, uh, you know, there's, it's a very hard thing to get done. The pressures are enormous. And so far, there's not enough unity in the government to sustain it. Um, and I don't know, Boris Johnson is uh, very determined, so we'll see how it plays out. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is a disaster. And, you know, the, the Remainers who are joined in labor, they were in the cabinet or they were in the conservative party when the, when the referendum happened. They, they were part of a parliament that voted for that to happen. And so they're implicated in the thing, and they didn't get the result they wanted, so they're going to do something else. And Boris Johnson has threatened to prorogue uh, the parliament, which means send them home and have an election. He is riding high in the polls because he has brought clarity. And I, I actually am beginning to think clarity is the thing that is prized. People call it authenticity. It's not authenticity. It's actually just say what you mean and mean what you say. Yeah. If, you know, uh, uh, it's not true that the worst policy is better than no policy, but almost any bad policy is better than no policy. It's, uh, you know, yep. and they haven't had a policy. They've, uh, you know, the, the Tories asked the people for, for a vote, and they gave the vote. And so they haven't been clear until Boris ascended to the premiership what they were going to do. And, and, they, and why? Because it was always contingent on what they could get Europe to do. And so... The very thing that was voted down by the people, you know, it was a tight election, but it was, I think it was four points, um, 52-48. Yes. That's uh, uh, the very thing they voted, which is Europe is not going to tell us what to do. That's what's been happening. And I want to go back even a little bit further because people forget the origin of this. David Cameron was then the prime minister of Great Britain in a coalition with the liberal Democrats who are to the left of the, of the Tories, but to the right of labor. And he went to the people in an election. He said, I will give you a referendum and I will abide by the re-. He promised it. And surprisingly, he won a majority. And then he was obliged to deliver the referendum, which he campaigned against. 
And being a man of principle, since he campaigned against it when he lost and the people voted for it, he quit. But they ought not to have put Theresa May in, who also campaigned against it. They should have put in a Brexiteer like Gove or Boris Johnson then. So we've just been in three years of suspended animation. Yeah, and see, that's those divisions that are it's a very narrow parliament. See, and to go back, the election that Cameron won in which he promised the referendum, he won a big majority. He won a comfortable single-party majority. And then... The referendum went the way it did. He resigned in good grace and retired from Parliament. No, he's, I think he's still an MP. I don't really know. And, uh, and then they did put Theresa May in, and that was the, uh, you know, those who were the Remainers, you know, in the party, in a, you know, voting for somebody who was a Remainer. But she did uh, uh, campaign and announce that she was going to get us out. We're going to leave. Britain's going to leave. Then she called an election along the way, and it was a wishy-washy election. And she didn't have a strong, clear policy. And she and her majority was gone because she's a, in a coalition right now. And uh, and so the Tories have hurt themselves. And uh, and this, you know, in, in general, this is you can blame the Tories all you want to. This is a very fundamental thing, right? This is this is a huge problem. They have been in the European Union now for two generations, and it's deeply insinuated into British society, and it changes the manners and habits, as the very eloquent uh, former attorney general, who was a lever in the, uh, in the May government, said, Jeffrey Cox is his name, he said, you know, we're, 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 working, we're going to recover our nationality, which means we've partially lost it. And there are a lot of people in Britain who don't think of themselves as British anymore. They think of themselves as European. I met a couple of them when I was over there this summer and had long talks with a couple of young men who were working on a film crew we had over there. And they were bright and they were attractive, fine young men. It was a lot of fun to talk with them. And their idea was that, you know, we're Europeans now. And um, so it's a very divided country and... and uh, God bless them as they try to get out of this mess. Amen. Now, there have been messes before. I mentioned the Reform Act in 1832. There was a moment in time in 1997 when the British government had to decide whether to fight for Hong Kong or to negotiate on behalf of Hong Kong a deal with the People's Republic of China because the Britons didn't annex Hong Kong when they took over Hong Kong. They leased it. Tell people about the run-up to 1997. Well, it, it goes way back to 1896 when they made this lease. And the lease uh, contain, uh, concerns three places, an island, and then two spots on the mainland opposite the island. And one is called Kowloon, and that's the closest to the island. And then the, others go, the other goes back away into the new territories. It's called so Kowloon, Hong Kong Island, and the new territories is what's at issue. And... Uh, in the, you know, China began to grow when it began to liberalize, and one of the first places it began to liberalize was an area just over the border from Hong Kong, where China is a huge economic power now and trades heavily through Hong Kong. So the places get in economically integrated. And so Margaret Thatcher goes over there and uh, bless the woman. She's the greatest I ever saw, but, and I did know her pretty well for a long time. But she did have a policy, and her policy was, I'm not going to get involved in imperial tanglements. Uh, I've always thought that the Falklands War, a, a glory to her, 
if the if the Argentine generals had negotiated with her, she probably would have made a deal with them, like the deal that she made in Hong Kong, which I'll describe in a second, where guarantee the rights and the democracy of the people of the Falklands. But they didn't do that. They wanted to thump their chest and have a military thing, and so she had no choice, and she went down there and whacked them, with our help, by the way. Um, so, so in Hong Kong, she she decided that in 1984, and you know, remember what the the scene was in 1984. Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were in close cooperation, and Gorbachev was running the Soviet Union, and they were negotiating, right? Those were exciting days and happy days, I think, you know, as these things go. Um, and she goes over to Hong Kong, and she sits down with the Chinese and says, you know, it's 13 years until it's up, and uh, uh, what are we going to do? And she negotiates a deal with them that Hong Kong would revert to Chinese control, and that, uh, and you know, it would have been very hard for her to do anything else, by the way, and she got these concessions. Uh, Hong Kong would keep its way of life. Uh, Hong Kong would have its own democratic procedures. Uh, uh, it would have, uh, uh, what is it called? It's called wide autonomy in all things except foreign policy. And, uh, and so, they, so then there's a, you know, there, now there's 12 years, I think it is, until the handover. And I, I will tell you, I, I, my, my wife's brother was running the Hong Kong office of a London law firm, and I had reason to go to Korea. So I stopped in Hong Kong to see him for the first time I was ever there. And I, I arrived there two days after Margaret Thatcher left, and the city was placarded in posters, black and white posters, all the same. And I got somebody to translate for me. They were calling for a Bill of Rights. Just, Margaret Thatcher had just left, and they were... They, they were there was a campaign to get a bill of rights for the people of Hong Kong. When we come back from break, this is the the history you never hear about the demonstrations in Hong Kong. Why are they demonstrating? Because Margaret Thatcher delivered a deal for them that made guarantees from the PRC guarantees which are in danger of being eclipsed. Dr. Larry Arn in the Hillsdale Dialogue returns. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studio. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. My guest, Dr. Larry Arn, and I are talking about Hong Kong, the roots of the current disturbance. Dr. Arn, we went over it very quickly, um, the fact that Britain leased Hong Kong from China in the 1890s. Uh, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt's grandfather, Admiral Joseph Tossig, was wounded in the Boxer Rebellion. He went there after the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War. He graduated from the Naval Academy in 1899, was part of that relief expedition, got shot in the leg. So there was a lot of unrest in China. Uh, and the United States was involved in it, and Great Britain was involved in it, because the empire was falling apart. And that lease was part of the settlement, right, in the 1890s that, that was part of the transition to a less tumultuous time. Yeah, it... it um you know, the West, China has been a mess for a long time, and you united with the highest body count probably in the 20th century, and that's saying something uh, under communism with Mao. And that itself, by the way, was a product of the fact that the Japanese, the Chiang uh, uh, Kai-shek's support was mainly in the south of China, and Mao's support was mainly in the north. 
and the Japanese occupied the South. And so he was driven away from his base, and, uh, and that's why the, the Chinese Civil War that attended upon the Second World War, why the communist, one of the reasons the communists won. And then, of course, a very stern rule by them for a long time, culminating in the 60s with the, with the uh, Cultural Revolution and the, and the, and the uh, Red Guard, is that what they were called? Yep. And they killed a lot of people. And and so China had been through all that, and it emerged from all that, especially under uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, who set up these special economic zones that have spread across China and made it a prosperous country and relatively much more prosperous than it used to be, and and the second largest economy in the world. And all of those things sort of got in train one way and another from... Um, uh, from you know in the in the 20th century after this 1896 treaty, and so uh, Margaret Thatcher made this arrangement with China in 1984, and I think she didn't have much choice. But the arrangement is pretty good. It says that the laws will be basically unchanged, and it guarantees some things that are just the things: uh, uh, rights of speech, assembly, press, association, travel, movement correspondence, uh, strike, occupation, academic research, religious belief. Those are all written into that agreement with Britain. Private property, ownership of enterprises, all of that's guaranteed. A separate legal system. That's right. And the, the laws will be basically unchanged, is the quote, right? Now, I will... And, and after the handover, and... I, I, I've lived a weird life, so it so happened I took a group of people to watch the handover. I was in Hong Kong Harbor. Harbor Wasn't Bruce Hershenson with you? He did. He did. That's right. And uh, it was, you know, it was fun, and we met with a great Democratic leader who arose named Martin Lee, who was the head of the Legislative Council. And he and his colleagues have waged, and he's retired now, but they've uh, waged a long fight to keep Hong Kong's freedoms intact and its independence intact. And in recent, in recent years, so in 2017, for example, China said that uh, the 1984 declaration was only a historical document and that the U.K. has no sovereignty and no power in, in uh, Hong Kong. It's China's now, and they can do what they want. That's their explicit position. Boris Johnson was the foreign minister when this was said, and Boris Johnson uh, said the U.K. Uh, uh, restate the validity of the document and Britain's commitment to Hong Kong. Britain's very interested in this because, you know, long time. And, you know, you should uh, about British rule in Hong Kong. If you ever watch that really great series, which you can get still by Martin Mil- uh, Milton Friedman called Free to Choose, a, a fair amount of it is about Hong Kong. And if you ever read James Clavell's Taipan or his Noble House, you'll get the understanding the British way was really the Hong Kong way. That's right. And it was, it was uh, you know, it thrived. Taxes were very low. They uh, mostly got money to run the government by 
uh, filling in bits of the harbor and selling the land, which well, became increasingly valuable. We will come back and pick up the story there. The, the Hillsdale Dialogue underway. All things Hillsdale found at hillsdale.edu. My guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Get your application. Get to Hillsdale. Get back here. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is the last radio hour of the week. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. You ought to go there today. And if you're in Washington, D.C., Hillsdale is going to be offering you a unique opportunity to get a graduate degree. So you got to go over to hillsdale.edu and check that out. The, uh, the fact is, it will be an education inside the Beltway that is available nowhere else. Nothing like it. And it's a graduate degree. And I believe it's going to open pretty soon, or am I blowing the, the soft launch here, Larry Arn? Uh, you're blowing the soft launch. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> the soft launch is in two weeks. and uh, I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I didn't say that. But all other things are at hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, we were talking about Hong Kong. In 1997, the agreement that Maggie Thatcher negotiated in 1984 took effect, and you were there to see the handover. And how's it gone in the 17 years since? Up and down. Uh, substantially, Hong Kong is what it was. Um, uh, you know, there's the, the, the Chinese are very intelligent, right? They're very uh, excellent in their tyranny. And so one of the things they did was they reformed the Legislative Council because it was producing huge majorities uh, to resist any Chinese intrusion into Hong Kong government. And uh, so now it's, uh, it's sort of like a Hegelian thing. Uh, you know, big companies get to appoint somebody and unions get to appoint somebody and, you know, and there's some popular vote too. And it, it just means basically that the, the Democratic Party of Martin Lee, founded by Martin Lee, can't really win an all-out majority anymore. And, and the, the recent, so there have been, you know, erosions, but there's not been a major change of the direction or administration of Hong Kong. Now, lately, now in 84, there were, no, sorry, in 2014, there were major protests for weeks. And that was because of a proposal that would give China more control over things. And then in, in these recent, what they come from is a big thing, right? They, the Chinese want to be able to, uh, people who are arrested and accused of crimes could be taken and tried in China. And the courts are not independent there, right? They're party courts. And, and uh, the, the Chinese have many methods of control. If you're a Chinese corporation, you've got, if you're of any size, you've got party officials stationed in your headquarters all the time. And they watch everything. And so... Uh, yesterday, the president of Cathay Pacific resigned. That's a really great airline if you ever fly on it. And it does huge business between <laughs> mainland China and the world, including Hong Kong. And so the chairman of Cathay Pacific made the mistake of announcing that we're not going to try to tell our employees what to do, what to think. And if they want to join these protests, you know, peacefully, what's that to us? And uh, so, you know, he uh, that turned around in about 48 hours, and the the top two executives were they resigned because they'd made a mistake and uh, shouldn't have said that. And uh, and so, and you know, there 
and so now the the employees of Cathay Pacific are discouraged. I think maybe even threatened termination for this. And so China's putting the pressure on. And uh, but the proposal is, you know, if you're going to be one of the items in the Declaration of Independence against Britain is they were arresting Americans and taking them to London for trial where they didn't know anybody. They couldn't be really tried by a jury of their peers because they're foreigners, effectively. And, uh, and so that's one of the complaints, right? And if you get moved over to the Chinese courts, well, then you're in the Chinese courts. No, I had it explained to me by an uh, expat, Chinese-American, very loyal American, said this, all grew, this extradition law grew out of a crime of murder that was committed on Taiwan. And the perpetrator fled back to Hong Kong, and he could not be extradited to Taiwan, and they had no provision for charging someone with murder in Taiwan. So they passed a law for one person. And as is always the case, when you pass a law for one person, that's why it's called, uh, that's why the United States Constitution prohibits them, right? We don't have laws that are intended to punish individual people. It always blows up in your hands because it, always ricochets around. So the Chinese are in an untenable position, although it seems to me, Larry, that if they were to repudiate the extradition law and fire, fire Carrie Lamb, they would revert to the, the placid understanding of two systems, one country that they need if they're ever going to get Taiwan to join the two systems, one country approach. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, sentiment in Taiwan is very much against that and has hardened against that over the years. Uh, and it's because of things like this. Yes. And and you, you're right. It it may just be awkwardness, right? If if you you know if you try to run everything, um, you 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 you'll end up. And see, it's not representative, right? It, it it if you're if the Hong Kong government had proposed this, then you know at least a lot of them can be voted out. And in the old days, they could all be voted out, but not now, right? And so what redress have they got? And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's the situation. Um, this, uh, uh, there, there's apparently 22,000, what's it called, Peace, uh, People's Armed Police. P-A-P, yep. And they were, they're gathered on the border of Hong Kong, mostly in a sports stadium, huge number of vehicles, and that body, that force, was formed after Tiananmen Square because they figured out, don't want to use the military, but if you look at the vehicles that are parked, those are military vehicles, and so they've just formed uh, an internal security force that's kind of like a military. And our friend Senator Tom Cotton has said two weeks in a row if the People's Republic of China dispatches the People's Army Police to violently put down Hong Kong demonstrations, the damage to the relationship between the United States and the PRC will be as bad as it ought to have been after Tiananmen Square, but was not. And it would be a complete break in relations with China. It's a uh, Senator Cotton sounding the alarm. Donald Trump, not so hard nosed. I think he is trying to persuade President Xi to do the smart thing, which is nothing. Yeah. he. Uh, so uh, there's a really great journalist for the Wall Street Journal who happens to be a graduate of Hillsdale College who writes on Hong Kong. Her name is Jillian Melcher. 
M-E-L-C-H-I-O-R, and I give a shout-out to her. Uh, I helped her meet Martin Lee, and she covers Hong Kong, and she does it really well. Uh, she's been critical of Trump, and maybe more than is right, I'm not sure. But uh, what Trump has done is said that uh, uh, Z, he's a, he's, a, he's a great man. It's a tweet, you know. It's a great man, and, uh, and if Z, would, is his, Z is a great man, and if he would sit down with the protesters, a humane solution could be quickly found. And then he also has hinted that uh, the trade negotiations are going to be tied to this. So he's suggesting some force. And, you know, what do I think? I think, you know, that I don't know. The story is not told yet about what Donald Trump is going to do about this. Um, it is a fact that uh, it's Chinese territory, and we don't govern it, and we ought not to try, although it's good for us to express our displeasure, including in our relations with China in various ways. So he's, he's being cautious about this, and that's kind of like his foreign policy, right? He's not quick to go try to do nation-building anywhere. And I think that's right, actually. And also, I think that, you know, I think... I think we should uh, be tough with them in the economic things about Hong Kong because they're great trading partners of ours and of the world's, and one's heart goes out to them because it is a tremendous thing. You know, it's one of the most prosperous places in the world. Your, your graduate, Jillian K. Melchior, has been uh, repeatedly bylining pieces on the church in China and the yeah. fact that China has a Christian awakening going on. They've got 58 million Protestants, millions of Catholics, and the government is suspicious of that. And my argument is they ought not to be Christians make great citizens. If you're worried about stability, and that's traditionally what Chinese central governments worry about, is the fact that it's a vast country with 1.3 billion people, and what do you do with this many people? You really want the evangelical and the Roman Catholic churches to prosper. They make good citizens, Larry Arn. And I think Jillian has been trying to make that argument for a long time. She's, you know, she's, she's a remarkable young woman. And, and, and she's, you know, she, uh, she I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to talk about her faith, but um, she's, she just sees, you know, people, you know, your relationship with God, <laughs> that's important. And, you know, China has an official church, and it has often suppressed Christianity and other religious movements. And, you know, there's a, there was a big movement a few years ago called the House Churches, where people would get together for Christian prayer groups in houses, and the Chinese police would break in and take them outside and break their legs in the street. So there's, you know, it's a it's a tough regime, but but not in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's got the Alliance Bible Seminary. Hong Kong's got the uh, Baptist Hong Kong Baptist University. They've always had freedom of religion in Hong Kong. That's, that's one of the right. things that's different from the mainland. It is, you know, the the British rule in Hong Kong was, you know, it was just in for, for the for the great majority of the time, it was just a runaway success, and there weren't that many glitches. And the people were free, and they, you know, they got a chance to work, and they, you know, if, if you, uh, because I'm so old now, and I, you know, went there a long time ago, I saw Hong Kong, you know, I've seen it half a dozen times or ten times, and, and when you first went there, they, there were, like, manufacturing 
in, in, in the new territories in Kowloon, a little bit on the island. And what they were making is plastic stuff, you know, and you know how there used to be jokes about yep. stuff made in China. And it's just not like that anymore. Oh, my gosh. What, a, what an economic engine when I was there. When we come back from break, we talk about the what ifs. There's two ways they can go. They can go back towards freedom in Hong Kong. President Xi can order that or they can go to repression. We'll talk about what happens when I return to Dr. Larry Arn and the uh, Hillsdale Dialogue. Let me remind you. This is the last day this week. We've raised 60 thousand dollars for the camps in Venezuela, where the displaced people of Venezuela, uh, the camps in Colombia, where the displaced people of Venezuela are hunkered down, waiting for Maduro to be overthrown. They're starving. Food for the poor is working with them every day. Uh, if you will send two hundred dollars to Food for the Poor, that is five thousand meals that food for the poor will deliver to those families, the desperate children and families in those camps. Go to huhewitt.com, click on the Crisis in Latin America banner at the very top, or you can call 855-359-4673, 855-359-4673, 855-359-HOPE to help food for the poor save lives in Latin America. The banner at HughHewitt.com is the easiest. It says crisis in Latin America. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is that time in the week when Dr. Larry Arn and I or some other representative of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu. And you should sign up there for their wonderful courses, their free letter in Primus. It's a, it's a speech digest that comes out monthly. Or you can watch their, uh, listen to every dialogue I've had with Dr. Ron and his colleagues at HughForHillsdale.com. We're talking about Hong Kong in a way that I think very few people did, giving you some historical background. Dr. Ron, during the break, I went and looked at uh, the latest news. And you're right, Cathay Pacific has been purged, probably by the Chinese authorities, as a result of being insufficiently pro-government. And a strategist by the name of David Roche predicts that these confrontations will, quote, be settled or crushed before October 1st, the 70th anniversary of China's National Day. And he says, I don't accept that this will be a small problem in a larger China economy. The reason I don't, because I believe any intervention from Beijing to Hong Kong will be immediately umbilically linked to what happens to trade talks and international relations globally. Beijing has to weigh two things, the political and the economic cause. What do you think happens after a crackdown if one comes and it is anything like Tiananmen Square, Larry Arndt? Well, that's, um, that, that's the, the problem that China has been balancing since it decided. China watched the fall of the Soviet Union, and they thought, well, this ain't working. So they figured out they're going to have to liberalize. And so they've, you know, and that there's extensive economic freedom in China. On the other hand, the press and the Internet and even private blogs are censored carefully. So it's a police state where people are allowed to work. There's heavy, anyway, it's, it's not a free country, but it's much freer than it used to be. And it's got a very productive, highly intelligent people on the main, in the main. And they've, they're an enormous, the, the chief asset of China is the Chinese people. And if you let them work, they'll produce a lot. Now, they've also, they set out with the purpose when they did this. They set out to, uh, to keep control and keep communism with Chinese characteristics, is the old phrase. Yep. And, and, uh, and so they've been trying to, 
they've been working that balance for a long time because in the end, what I think is they're interested in power. And so how do you get it? Well, you need people to work and produce or you'll get weak. That's what caused the collapse of the Soviet Union. The system was so corrupt and nobody worked anymore. And, uh, and you know, people were pressed down and degraded. So they, 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 they are trying, they're, they're, in a way, they're riding the tiger. They're, uh, they've, they've let this go, and they're working on controlling it. And they're, they use technology, very sophisticated way. You know, I, I read that the, the police are wearing glasses, you know, intelligent glasses, and they recognize every face they pass. And so they always know where everybody is, or huge numbers of people are. It's coming to the West, too, by the way. And so, and they use that, right? And, uh, and so in, in, in China, you got to watch it. You get, a, you get a score now, and you can travel if you have a good score, and the good score is compliance. Uh, so they're trying to hang on, right? And that's right. This, this thing is a problem. It's an enormous advantage for them, right? Because it's one of the big financial centers of the world. And if you ever, there's a place in Hong Kong called Victoria Peak. I bet you went up there. Yeah, I did. And you walk a circle around. It takes about an hour. And you're seeing the harbor all the way, you know, halfway around. And the other, you're seeing the islands off Hong Kong on the other side. It's just gorgeous. And that harbor, when you get up above it, as you can in that one place, it's one of the busiest harbors in the world, and it's you know a tremendous place, and uh, so that's a you know that's a very impressive thing, and and uh, they need that. It helps them very greatly, and uh, so so yeah, there's a lot of pressure, and uh, China, you know what they what they do. I mean, did you read the stories? Uh, Z has been made leader for life, and. Uh, there was a there was a convention where that was done, and he gave a four. You know, it's a, it's a great communist thing, right? He gave a four hour speech, <laughs> and you know, uh, it uh, and people were you know spontaneous burst of tears of joy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little bit North Korea like, isn't it? Isn't it though? Yeah, it's like you know the old Soviet Union. You know, they uh, they they uh, Brezhnev. You know, who's you know one of the meanest, but also surely one of the dullest human beings who ever lived, yep. would stand up and talk for six hours to the, to the Supreme Soviet. And people had to stand there and pretend, sit there and pretend they liked that. And, uh, and you know, people watching them, too. So it's, it's that kind of society. And, and uh, I don't think they wanted this controversy. I think they stumbled into it, but I think it's the kind of thing they will stumble into. And they got to get out of it. And the key is, how do you get out of it? And we will watch that over the weekend because if they get out of it the wrong way, Tom Cotton has been very, very blunt. That is going to be the end of relations for a long time between the PRC and China uh, uh, and the United States. It would not be a good thing. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Always a pleasure on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Thank you, America, so much for listening. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thanks to each and every one of you. We'll be back Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.